Good morning. As Brian said, I'm Brandon Barnett, and uh, I'm used to teaching in the children's building, so it's, it's actually a, a joy to get to teach without having to wear a, a fake beard or mustache <laughs> or a, you know, a gold sequin tunic or something like that, because uh, those can get pretty distracting when you're teaching. So uh, I do enjoy get to, getting to know you, and I, I hope to meet those of you that I don't know over the next uh, coming weeks and months here in this class, so uh, looking forward to that. We're continuing our way this morning through 1 Corinthians, and, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I really I thought, I thought Brian was playing a trick on me when he, when he called and said, you're going to teach 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you have to teach the entire chapter, because you know, I really didn't think our church did that, an entire 23 verses in, <laughs> in, in one sitting. So uh, we're going to get through all 23 verses this morning, and I'm looking forward to it. Now, chapter 3 is really in Paul's still opening rebuke and correction of the Corinthian believers. He's, just like Chaz uh, showed us a couple of weeks ago, he's still talking about the divisions that exist in the church. And Paul really could have opened, you know, 1 Corinthians with any number of corrections for these Corinthians. We're going to see in, in the later chapters sexual immorality and greed and idolatry, yet he opens with division because that's how he sees the, to be the most important correction for this church. And, and if, this, if this problem isn't corrected, as Brian told us last week, this church really is on the brink of collapse and crumbling. So I'm going to take uh, somewhat of a medical theme this morning. I'm not, uh, I have no background in medicine whatsoever. I'm an attorney by trade, so uh, just bear with me on that. But we're going to look at Paul as the treating physician. He's going to do a diagnosis of their problem, and then he's going to outline a course for correction, which is why I've titled this lesson a a prescription for spiritual maturity. Now, before we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, that'd be great. But before we dive into the text, I just wanted to remind us of the culture in Corinth at the time that Paul was writing this letter. And this was, uh, this was something that Dwight went over several weeks ago when he did his introduction to 1 Corinthians. But Corinth was a very wealthy and prosperous city. And Corinth was marked by you know, worldliness, but really Roman values and Greek culture. So when we, we think of things like uh, status, influence, power, uh, the quest for wisdom, wealth, knowledge, all those things, really anything that was antithetical to the message of the cross, anything that was opposed to this, this idea of humility and, and denying oneself, that was Corinth at the time when Paul was writing this letter. In fact, I've heard it uh, said by another teacher that if we took New York City and, and the quest for uh, money and power, and, and we mixed it with Los Angeles or Hollywood and the quest for celebrity and fame, and then we, we took that and we mixed it up with Las Vegas and the, and the rampant immorality that's, that's, that you see in Las Vegas, that would be Corinth at the time that Paul is writing this letter. In fact, John MacArthur says, even by the pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. To Corinthianize came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. So th this is a place where e perhaps even Las Vegas wouldn't claim the things that was going on in Corinth at this time. There's a, there's a major worldview problem. And, and really, whether the Corinthians could see it or not, it was infecting their church. It was impacting their church. And it was causing big problems. Now, I understand we don't live in 
New York, or Los Angeles, or Las Vegas, but we would be crazy to think that the, that the ideas that are, that are being promoted, that are prevalent in those places, don't have the capability to, to creep their way into our church, to creep their way into our own minds and the way we think about things. Uh, I mean, we can see it everywhere, really. We can see it in, in entertainment, television, movies. We can see it in literature. We can see it uh, in politics and government. And we can see it in our education system. We can see it in our university system. Just the other day, I was talking to a, a university student who attends um, a local North Texas university, and she's studying to be an autism therapist for children. So she's taking a class that was ethics, but ethics as it relates to the treatment of autistic children. And the ethics professor posed a question to this class, and, and she had such trouble with it because she's a Christian. The question that he posed to the class was, if you have a child in your therapy center and it's a little boy, and he wants you to treat him like a little girl. And he wants you to call him by a little girl's name, and he wants you to allow him to wear a little girl's clothes when he's in your clinic. Number one ethical question, do you do that? And number two ethical question, do you tell his parents about it? And she had such trouble with this question because she knew what the Bible said, and the, the professor said the only ethical response was that you do what the child wants and you don't tell his parents about it. So, so the, the worldview that we see around us it's here. It's, it's on our doorstep, whether we, whether we believe it or not. And it's going to impact our lives and in the lives of our children unless we're vigilant and careful about it. So Paul's letter here is, is really, even though it's written so long ago, it's timely for us here. Now, the way I've uh, divided our text up this morning, we're going to examine the, the problem in verses 1 through 4, and we're going to kind of camp out there a little bit, and then we're going to look at the solution in the remainder of the chapter. So if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. We'll read all 23 verses, and then we're going to dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor." For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise by their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. 
So then, no one is to be boasting in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So clearly, Paul's addressing and correcting a problem in this chapter, and the problem as he sees it is their lack of spiritual maturity. The Corinthian church has been going for some five years now, and they are failing to grow. They are failing to thrive. They're not progressing in holiness as Paul would have expected. That's the message of this chapter. But before Paul begins his correction, he's going to uh, give a little anesthesia for these Corinthian believers. He's, he's going to cushion the blow, if you will. And that's right there in the first verse, verse 1a, where he says, And I, brethren... I know we've talked about this in the past several weeks, but this is the fourth time now in 1 Corinthians, in the first two chapters and first verse of the third, that Paul has called them brothers. He's addressing them not as outsiders. He's addressing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the 14th time that Paul's used language that shows that he's with them. He says, we, us, our. He's showing that, that he's a brother. They're, they're in this together. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Paul is demonstrating here that he is their friend. They are his brothers and sisters, but, but he's also warning them, you know, buckle up because I'm about to tell you what's going on. I'm about to give you some, some tough correction. And so in his rebuke and correction that follows, Paul is going to address the character of the problem, the cause of the problem, and the complications of the problem. But then after his expert diagnosis, he's going to provide a cure for the problem, which is uh, the prescription for spiritual maturity. So, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 here because that's where Paul gives his diagnosis. And I'm going to take the verses a little bit out of order because I first want us to see the character of the problem or the symptoms. And anytime you go to the doctor to, you know, get, get help, get treatment, you're going to be complaining of certain symptoms. And before Paul points out the, the symptoms for the Corinthians, I was, just wanted to point out, I was talking to Brian about this the other day, and, and he made a comment that I thought was helpful. The Corinthians didn't go to Paul's clinic here. They didn't go complaining about any of their ailments. We don't even know if they understand or realize what their problem is. The problems were brought to Paul by Chloe's people, and, and Paul's been now told about what's going on. And so whether they like it or not, the doctor has come to them. And Paul's going to talk about their symptoms. And the first symptom that he sees comes from verse 4, and that is jealousy. Jealousy being the inner emotional condition of extreme selfishness. And along with jealousy, Paul notes their strife. And strife is the outward expression of selfishness. Strife results in conflict among the brothers, in, in discord, in dissension inside the church. He says that in verse 3, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Now, the fact that there would be jealousy and strife in this church is not surprising to Paul. After all, they are sitting smack in the culture that we just talked about, smack in this culture that you know, values influence and wisdom and social status above anything. This culture is completely self-centered. And, and so the culture around them is stunting their growth because that sin is still with them, the sin of jealousy and strife. You know, Paul wrote Galatians around the same time that he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul describes the deeds of the flesh, and he, he lists a bunch of them. And in that, he, he describes strife and jealousy. He wrote something similar in Romans chapter 13, where in verse 12, Paul says, let's behave properly, not in strife and jealousy. 
And then he goes on to say, make no provision for the flesh. This is something that Paul sees in churches that are having trouble. Commentator David Garland says this about the jealousy and strife of the Corinthians. Treating the church community as an arena in which to maneuver and advance their personal status reveals that they are controlled by human motives and the purely human order of things. They act no differently than the rest of Corinthian society. So jealousy and strife that Paul's pointing out here, these are not the hallmarks of a united church. These are not the hallmarks of a church that are, that are growing and maturing in the faith. In addition to the jealousy and strife that Paul points out, the other symptom he notes in verse 4 is their division over teachers. Now, I know we've talked about that probably the last three weeks in here, but Paul's not done correcting them for it. He's not done talking about their factionalism and how it's, how it's a problem. And Paul, as their diagnosing physician, is telling them that not only is this a big symptom, it's probably the key indicator of their lack of maturity is their division. Their division is a threat to the gospel. Their division is going to mean that they're not going to have an impact for the kingdom. I read this the other day, for those of you that like puns. Uh, the reason Satan loves division is because it prevents multiplication. <laughs> so if this church is to grow, if this church is to progress, they cannot be divided. And they've divided themselves over which teacher they prefer. And they're, they've drawn these lines in the sand. They've, they've pledged these allegiances, and it's, it's causing a division inside the church. But if we look at the heart of the division, what are they really doing? If, if one of them says, I'm of Paul because he planted the church and he first preached the gospel to me, or one says, I'm of Apollos because he's an eloquent speaker, what are they doing when they're dividing over teachers? They're really elevating themselves, or at least they're trying to. They're trying to, this is complete arrogance. The Corinthians are saying, I'm more holy, I'm more wise, I'm more godly because I follow the teaching of Paul. You know, unlike you who follows the teaching of Apollos who came later. And they're taking what's, what's rampant in the culture, which is this, you know, quest for philosophers and this, this social pecking order, and they're bringing it inside the church to create their own little Christian version of it. And this is preventing their growth. So that's the character of the problem. Those are the symptoms. Jealousy, strife, worldliness, division over teachers. These Corinthians are arrogant. They are elevating themselves at each possible turn. That's, and that's the cause of their immaturity. So now we've seen the character of the problem. Let's look at the cause of the problem, which in, I guess in medical terms would be the etiology. Why was there jealousy and strife? Why were they divided over teachers? Why were they failing to grow? So Paul's looked at the diagnostic report, the MRI, x-ray, what have you. He's determined that the cause is the flesh. The Corinthians are acting fleshly, just like the world around them. Now, more specifically, although the Corinthians were saved, they were still following the desires of their flesh. They were still chasing the idols of the world in which they lived, and, and they weren't killing the flesh, which they're commanded to do, and, and as a result, they weren't maturing in the faith. Paul's really telling them, hey, look around. Look around you. The culture around you is evil, and you, you're not looking any different from them. You're supposed to be set apart. But you are fleshly. Now, the word he uses for this, this idea of being fleshly 
sarkikos, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, is, is not a word to say they are of the flesh. It's a word to say they are acting like they're of the flesh. To, to bring it home, I, I think of it like this. If my wife were to do this, and she would never do this, but if she were to say, you are a jerk, she'd be saying that, that, that that's what I am. I'm a jerk. That's, that's who I am. That's my identity. But if instead she said, you're acting like a jerk, then she'd be saying in that moment, you're not always a jerk. Just right now, you're acting like one. So cut it out. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. You are not of the flesh. You are set apart, but you are acting fleshly. Now I have to take a brief uh, detour here because 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 has been used to, to promote some, some doctrine that's dangerous. Some doctrine that would deny lordship salvation. That's the doctrine of the carnal Christian. This was put out over 100 years ago by the first president of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, Lewis Berry Schaefer. And, and what he says is that, that all of the human race is divided into three types of people. There is the natural man who's unsaved. There's the carnal Christian who's saved but is a babe in Christ. And then there's the spiritual man who's saved and who's walking, progressing in holiness. And, and here's how he describes the carnal Christian, this, this middle category. Those saved, carnal Christians are walking according to the course of this world. They are carnal because the flesh is dominating them. The objectives and affections are centered in the same unspiritual sphere as that of the natural man. And this teaching is dangerous because it would allow people to believe that they are saved when, and that they have true faith when their life is totally devoid of any fruit whatsoever. And we spent the last two years with Pastor Tom working through the tests of true faith in 1 John. But this carnal Christian doctrine would allow someone to fail the test of true faith over and over again, but just say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. I'm just walking in sin because that's, that's the type of Christian I am. But we know that the Bible teaches, John 10, 27, that true faith results in the believer following Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It doesn't say that the sheep keep grazing in the pasture unaffected by the call of their shepherd. True faith results in a changed life. 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. True faith results in a complete transformation of the inner person. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. True faith results in love for our brothers, obeying God's commandments, doing the will of God, abiding in God's word, keeping God's word, doing good works. So this idea that a person can be saved, yet his life remain completely unchanged, untouched by his Lord, is not supported by Scripture. Now, we can't discount the power of sin. As Christians, we're going to struggle with sin our entire lives. And really, Paul's teaching leaves room for that. Paul himself, in Romans chapter 7, laments the remnants of sin that are still in his own life. He hates them. But Paul's not teaching that there are two types of Christians here. What he's doing is he's warning the Corinthians that their attitudes and their actions are fleshly. They appear like the pagan world around them, and they must recognize that they are called to something higher and pursue holiness. Positionally, they are spiritual, but practically they are not behaving like it. And this correction and this condemnation for the, the fleshly behavior, we're going to see in the coming weeks, it's going to continue. In chapters 4 through 14, Paul's going to address more fleshly behavior, sexual immorality, idolatry, greed, so now Paul's diagnosed the character of the problem. He's explained the cause of the problem as the flesh, and now he's going to outline the complications of the problem. Because they've not matured as they ought, they are impaired 
in certain ways. Now, every, every medical condition, of course, comes with some sort of limitation. A diabetic might have to change their diet. A, a person who sprains their ankle might need to ice and rest or uh, you know, stop exercising until the sprain heals. For the Corinthians, their lack of maturity, their, their failure to thrive has come with limitations or complications as well. And the, the first of those is that Paul must address the Corinthians as babies. Paul cannot address the Corinthians as spiritually mature people. In verse 1, Paul writes, he could not speak to them as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, of course, when Paul first planted the church and he's first teaching and sharing the gospel, it makes sense that he had to treat them as babies. They were. They were, they were immature in that point. They were not saved yet. But now, since their conversion, it's been nearly five years. And what Paul is still saying here in these verses is, even now, you're not yet able to receive God's deeper wisdom, for you are still fleshly. Commentator Garland points out that Paul's description of the Corinthians as babies here is highly ironic in a congregation that touted and prized its spiritual giftedness. And, and the word that Paul uses for, for infants or for babies is napios, and it's not the, the word that you would use for babies as we think of it. So it's not the cute, cuddly little babies that smell so good and we just want to you know, squeeze them. It's not that type of baby. It's, it's really used in a pejorative sense here. It's, it's used as an insult. It's something that would have been particularly concerning for these Corinthian congregation who deemed themselves very wise. Imagine if you were one of them and you were of the camp that said, I am of Paul. Here's Paul finally writing to you and you're probably excited to read his letter. And what he's telling you is, I can't even, I can't even give you the deeper wisdom of God because you're, you're still walking like the flesh. The writer of Hebrews had the same, wrote about the same struggle in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, where it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, somewhat of a clarification is required. Milk is not a bad thing. Uh, it's not intended to, to portray that here. Milk is the elementary doctrines of the faith. Everyone needs milk. And in fact, every doctrine that our church teaches ought to be able to be taught to adults and to children. It's just the manner in which we teach it is different. If you look in your bulletin every week, there's a little children's corner thing, and you've got some questions that, that you should be able to ask your children, and they should be able to answer every week. That is the milk. That's the milk of the word. In fact, uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2.2 2, tells us that even mature Christians ought to crave spiritual milk. He says, like newborn babies, you should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So we don't stop drinking milk in, in our Christian walk. We don't do that, but we should be moving from a diet of exclusively milk to one that includes solid food as well. And solid food, of course, is the, is the deeper application of the gospel truth that leads to discernment. Solid food leads to growth in the ability to, to determine good from evil. Solid food is what makes someone a Berean. But the complications of the Corinthians' immaturity is that Paul cannot feed them solid food. 
And if you can't feed them solid food, if, they can only, if you can only feed them a diet of milk and treat them as babies, then the Corinthians' failure to grow is going to be prolonged. Their, their lingering fleshly behavior has prevented their growth so far, and if they don't change, it's going to continue. And, and like we were warned about last week, their church could indeed collapse. So now we've seen Paul's diagnosis and his explanation of the, the character of the problem, its cause, and its complications here in verses 1 through 4. Now with the remainder of the chapter, Paul's going to outline the cure for the problem or the prescription for spiritual maturity and growth. This is where we get our chapter theme here. The chapter theme is that in order to grow in spiritual maturity, every Christian must regard teachers rightly, recognize God's authority and ownership, and realize their own role. The first part of this prescription for these, these divided Corinthians, these uh, celebrity pastor-worshiping Christians, is to regard teachers rightly. Now, Paul provides some pointed illustrations to help demonstrate the true status of a Christian teacher. In fact, this, is the, this unit is actually the longest in the entire New Testament on how the leaders of the church and its members should relate to one another. So look at verse 5. Paul writes, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You notice that Paul does not say, Who is Apollos? Or who is Paul? He's, he's trying to take the focus off of their personality and, and their personhood and their celebrity, and he's putting it on their function. These teachers that you claim and that you worship and that you follow, not who are they, but what are they? And he says they are servants through whom you believed. The word used in verse 5 for, for servant is diakonos, which is where we get our, our word deacon. And now when, when we hear the word deacon, we think of you know, highly respected men of the church, but that's not how Paul's putting it here. What Paul's saying, he's using this term deacon not to mean uh, a revered leader, but a lowly servant. And not just a lowly servant, but a lowly servant who performs a menial or unskilled task. D.A. Carson's commentary says, To Gentile ears, servant or diakonos spoke above all of a low social status. Servant here does not carry any claim of derived authority. So instead of the Corinthians feeling like they personally are somebody for associating with these teachers, Paul is really only offering them disgrace by association. It gets worse in verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. And then in verse 7, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So now not only are these servants that you're following, or these teachers you're following servants, but they are lowly farm servants. One of them stoops on his hands and knees and plants seeds, and the other one comes behind him and waters the seeds. And both of them, verse 7 says, are nothing. Meaning that both of them are left to pray that God will cause the increase. God will miraculously cause the crops to grow, or else their work is in vain. Now, of course, we don't take this to mean that, that our teachers that God has ordained and blessed us with are, are worthless. That, that we know that's not true. But what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to take the focus off of the teachers and place it on Christ, place it on God. And in order to refocus the Corinthians on where to place their worship and, and how to get rid of their absurd factions, they have to focus on God and not on their human teachers. Let's look at some of the other characteristics Paul gives for teachers. He says they are united. He who plants and he who waters are one. You know, a planter isn't much if, if the seed isn't watered. And similarly, someone who waters, waters in vain if there's no seed in the ground. 
So even though Paul and Apollos and Cephas have different tasks to do, they are united in the same goal, which is that this field will yield crops. And if they are united, then the Corinthian church ought to also be united and not favoring the planter over the waterer or vice versa. These servants also belong to God and are dependent on God's grace. Verse 9 calls them God's fellow workers. Not that they are fellow workers with God, but that God owns them. They are fellow workers together for God. They have the same master and they are accountable to him. Each one's going to receive his reward according to his labor. They're dependent on God's grace, verse 10, as they serve him. These teachers, these servants, they really can't do anything on their own. So why would we boast in them? Why would the Corinthians boast and and be divided over these teachers, is what Paul is trying to tell them. The last thing I'd like you to see from this passage as it relates to regarding teachers rightly uh, comes from the last few verses. Look at verse 21. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Uh, Skip ahead, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. These teachers belong to the church. It's backwards for the Corinthians to say, I am of Paul. They should be saying, Paul is of me. By God's grace, Paul and Apollos serve us. So we have to regard teachers rightly if we want to be united and grow in spiritual maturity. We also must recognize God's authority and ownership. Recognize God's authority and ownership. You know, understanding God's role in ministry really does go hand in hand with with regarding teachers rightly. If we explain, if Paul explains the true role of teachers, he's really not just trying to tear down the Corinthians' factions. I mean, he, he is doing that, but, but that's not all he's doing. He's trying to show them that they ought to replace that affection with affection for God. And in verses 5 through 8, really, Paul does a masterful job of showing how the servant is dependent on the master. Look at this chart here. So verse 5, Apollos and Paul are servants, but God assigned them the task. Verse 6, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Verse 7, the planter and the water are nothing, but God who gives the growth is everything it implies. Verse 8, the planter and water are one, but God will reward each according to their labor. So we see God's authority and ownership by the fact that God gives spiritual gifts and ministry opportunity. Paul writes that it was only according to the grace of God that he was able to plant the church. It's only by the grace of God he was able to lay the foundation. He calls himself the wise master builder, not to elevate himself, but to say that I'm the architect, I'm the general contractor, but God commissioned the building. It was God who who asked me to do this, God who equipped me to do this, and God's going to be the one that comes along and inspects that same building. So Paul really doesn't credit his own wisdom or skill for anything he's able to do or accomplish. He gives all the glory to God. He's, He's trying to point the Corinthians back to him. Don't look at me. Look at God is what Paul is telling him. And this is really important for us to understand as well. It's, it'll take us a while, but when we get to Roman, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's going to talk about us all being members of the same body, each of us having a different gift and, and use it in a different way. And if God has divinely formed us as a body, then we ought, there ought to be no division among us, and, the, and same for the Corinthians. In addition to giving gifts and ministry opportunity, God accomplishes salvation and causes growth. Look back at verse 5 where Paul writes, the Lord gave opportunity for salvation for the Corinthians. Verse 6, where God's causing the growth. What a weight 
that's lifted off our shoulders to know that our responsibility is to be faithful and God is going to be the one that causes the increase. I can remember growing up in the church that I was in, uh, we would go out soul winning, right? We would go out evangelizing the local community and, and there would be people that would be alongside of us, um, you know, fellow Christians in the church that would be so anxious about what if I don't say it right? What if I don't remember the Romans road, they would say? But what if I don't get it exactly right? What if I fumble over my words? Nobody's going to come to faith in Christ because I messed up. And Paul's saying that's nonsense, right? The, 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 you're a servant, and we're supposed to be faithful to, to learn how to, how to evangelize someone. And there's a, there's a class for that in this building next hour. We should learn how to do that. We should learn to do it as best we possibly can. But it's not our job to cause the growth. We are to be faithful. That's what Paul is telling him. So, so really, there should be no anxiety in sharing the gospel. And this echoes what's written in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. Another aspect of God's authority and ownership is that God judges and rewards his servants. Verse 8 tells us that God assesses the work of his servants and rewards each according to their labor. The Corinthians were spending an awful lot of time and energy assessing their own servants, judging these teachers and trying to figure out which one they ought to follow. And Paul's telling them that, that they need to cut it out. Not only are these workers united, but it's not your job to conduct the assessment. God is going to conduct the assessments. If you look down a few verses in 13 to 15, God is now the building inspector of this building, and he is the one that will test the quality of the materials that are being used for the building in a test by fire. Afterwards, it says in verse 14, if any man's work that he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And for those of you that haven't been to service yet, Pastor Tom uh, expounds on this this morning when he talks about God being the judge and having perfect justice. The reason that God is the only one who can rightly assess our labor and rightly assess his workers and inspect the building is because God owns the field. He owns the building and he owns the workers. They all belong to God. In order to grow in spiritual maturity, Christians must regard teachers rightly, recognize God's authority and ownership, and they must also realize their own role. They must realize their own role. You know, the, the Corinthians have a part to play. They have a part to play in their growth. And so do we. Paul says in verse 16 that we, meaning the corporate we as the church, are the temple of God. He's going to talk later in, in chapter 6 about each of us individually being the temple of God when he, when he discusses sexual immorality. But in, in this chapter, he's talking about the church. The Corinthian church is the temple of God. And as the temple of God, you are expected, as members of the temple of God, you are expected to build. Verse 10, Paul says that although he laid the foundation, another is building on it. Now, he's talking about teachers that, that have come after him, after he planted the church, and they're continuing to teach the church. But, but more than that, Paul's giving instructions for all Christians in how they build on the foundation. And this denotes an expectation that we will build. 1 Corinthians 15.58 calls us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. As Christians, we ought to be busy about the work of our master. And Paul also gives warnings here and instructions for when we are to build, how we ought to build. He says that you must use care in how you build. 
When you use care in how you build, you must only build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, that isn't to say that other foundations don't exist. We know the foolish man builds his house on the sand. But there's only one foundation that is sturdy and reliable and trustworthy. Only one foundation on which we can build the church, and that's Jesus Christ. Don't waste your time and your toil building, if you're building on a, a faulty foundation, concocted from the world's wisdom. So not only must we build on the right foundation, we have to build with valuable materials. We should strive to build with imperishable or valuable materials. You know, the, the reason we build with such valuable materials is because of the character of the foundation. If Jesus Christ is the foundation of the building, then, then only the best and choice materials should be used. And, and Paul really breaks it down into a building with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So there's, there's two categories here, really. That there's valuable materials, gold, silver, precious stones, then there's wood, hay, and straw, not as valuable. The gold, the silver, the precious stones, those are, those are ideas of, of building with things that are going to last, that are going to endure. If this building's going to be tested with fire, then we want the things that are going to remain. The wood, hay, and straw are not as valuable. They're, they can be helpful. They can have some utility in this life, but in a test for fire, they will not remain. They will not endure. And so Paul is encouraging us to build with only the most valuable materials. Now, I don't have time to you know, unpack the, what it means exactly to build with gold versus straw, but one way to think about it is to examine your mission, your method, and your motive. For your mission, what is your goal in, in serving the Lord and in, in building? What's the goal? What's your immediate goal and what's your eternal goal? The method, how are you going about it? Are you being faithful or are you being lazy and careless? And then your motive, what's, what is the motive for your service? Do you want to be praised among men or, or is your motive purely for the Lord? So looking at your mission, your method, and your motive can, can help you distinguish between when you're building with gold or valuable materials or inferior materials. And ultimately at the Bema seat, God is going to judge our service. Now, now this isn't the judgment of salvation. We know that every Christian is secure in their salvation, but this is the judgment where God is going to judge the Christian service and will be rewarded for faithful service. So we ought to build with those materials that will endure that judgment. In addition to careful building, we must also be vigilant and stand guard against the wisdom of this age. Your handout has a, has a typo. It says again. It should say against. Sorry. Stand guard against the wisdom of this age. And in that, in that regard, we ought to not be deceived, verse 18 tells us. We must continually examine the source of our wisdom. We really deceive ourselves to think that the world can impart spiritual truth. The Corinthians were deceived, thinking they could take the status system of the world and, and the judgments of the world and bring it into the church and be divided along these lines. You know, wisdom, and I'll use air quotes for the recording, wisdom from any other source is fallible, foolish, you go to any bookstore and you can find hundreds of books written by the best thinkers, psychologists, therapists, whatever. The best thinkers that we've got are marked by sin and will be a faulty foundation on which to build a life. We saw this back in chapter 1. I think Brian mentioned it last week. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? God calls all of their collective knowledge moros, which is where we get our word moron or moronic. That's how he 
That's what he calls their wisdom. Just as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we have to take every thought captive with the obedience to Christ. So we have to be vigilant and examine the source of our wisdom. Notwithstanding our own evaluation of the world's wisdom, we have to recognize that God appraises the world's wisdom that is foolishness. God's assessment of, of the world's wisdom is the only one that matters. In verse 19, Paul quotes from, from Job 5.13. He says that God captures the wise by their craftiness. So we can take the, the pinnacle of man's intelligence and God's going to expose it as foolishness. Human wisdom cannot save and it cannot help these believers to grow a united church. Then in verse 20, Paul quotes from Psalm 94. It says, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. In the grand scheme of what is eternal, human knowledge and reason is not just inferior, but it's useless. When I think of uh, you know, amassing all the human wisdom together, it makes me think uh, nowadays about artificial intelligence. You can, you can get on the internet and ask a question about just about anything. And for, for some things, there's some uh, you know, practical use. If I ever have to wear a bow tie, I never remember how to tie a bow tie, and I get on the internet and ask, how do I tie a bow tie? And I can learn very quickly. Um, just, let's see, this week I, if you don't know what ChatGPT is, it's an uh, internet app that you can ask it just about anything. So I asked ChatGPT, you can see on my recording here, I'm going to ask it to write me a 500-word essay on the Great Depression. So, so if there's any of you in here that are still in, in school, don't ever do this, okay? Um, you could ask it to write you 2,000 words on the grapes of wrath, something like that. And, and watch this. In about 15 seconds, I'm a slow typer, in about 15 seconds, it's going to spit out a 500-word essay on the Great Depression. Look at that. It's polished. It's pretty good. And so for some things, the world's wisdom can have some use. So this was really fun in the children's building because we would use it. We would, the girls would give me uh, ideas. They'd say, okay, let's write a rap song about a tabby cat. And so I'd say, write a rap song about a tabby cat. And it would spit out a rap about a cat. And then we'd have fun looking at that. But, but for the things that are spiritual, for the things that apply to the truth about what God has for us in his word, the world's wisdom is useless because I asked the same thing. I said, I asked ChatGPT, write a 500-word essay on the truth about gender. And here's, here's an excerpt. One fundamental truth about gender is that it is not confined to a binary model. Gender is best understood as a spectrum encompassing a wide range of identities and expressions. Recognizing this diversity is essential for fostering inclusivity and respecting individuals' autonomy in defining their own gender. That's what, that's what the pinnacle of the world's wisdom is giving us if we ask it about spiritual truth. Let's look again at verses 21 through 23. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Paul's going to close this chapter with the greatest incentive for unity in the church. No one should be boasting in men, he says. All things belong to you, and we belong to Christ. We together as a corporate body belong to Christ, which is our greatest incentive for unity. I like how John MacArthur sums up this chapter. He says, 
the greatest possible motive for maintaining unity of the Spirit and for avoiding church division is knowing that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Because we all belong to him, we belong to each other. These, these believers have to stand vigilant. This, this Corinthian church has to remain on guard or it's going to be divided. It's going to break up. I read about, reading about church division, I read about a church that was divided, a church split that happened at a potluck dinner. You see, they had a potluck dinner and a lady at the church brought a congealed salad and instead of, instead of using real whipping cream for the salad, she used Cool Whip. And I, I guess that's not, you're not supposed to do that because the Cool Whip arguments broke the church up and it divided into two. And it'd be silly for us to think that that could happen over Cool Whip. The reason something like that happens is because there's jealousy, there's strife, there's divisions. There's all these things working under the surface that they just need a little bit of Cool Whip to, to implode. So let's look at some application for, of this chapter. Be mindful of how you consider human teachers. We are blessed at this church with having wonderful teachers come through here. From Pastor Tom to every guest speaker to all of our elders and teachers, we have some really awesome teachers. But if we were to be divided inside of our body about which teachers we prefer over the others, we could have the same problem happen to us. Our teachers are never a replacement for the Lord. Our affection must be on Him. We also ought to crave both milk and solid food of spiritual wisdom. And we should really be looking at that. You know, do we want this to just be easy and spoon-fed to us or bottle-fed to us? We should be doing what we have to do on a daily basis to pursue solid food so that we can move on to grow in spiritual knowledge and discernment. We need to get to work building God's church. If we're building together, we're going to be united. If we're doing good work and we're using our best and most choice materials, we're going to be united as a body. And we must disown worldly wisdom. And not just, not just disown it, we have to recognize it. Because sometimes it's insidious, right? We have to see it. We have to notice it. And the only way to do that is for us to know this, this book really, really well, right? If we know this book well, we're going to be able to see when we spot a fraud, when we spot error. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be rooted in God's word as our source of wisdom. And if we do these things, then we as a body will mature in Christ. The Corinthians as a body, if they do this, they're going to mature as a church. They're not going to be divided, and we too will be a united church. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, to be united as a body of believers. God, we pray that uh, we would listen to what you have for us in your word. We thank you for preserving this for us to study. We ask that you would allow us to apply it to our lives. May we go from this place rehearsing your truth and be a united body for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.